0: warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain, with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner.
1: Episode 52, Walking the Dog. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner. And with me, as always, is the most vaccinated man in America, Chris Paget. Thank you, Josh. I'm feeling especially healthy today. Yeah, we, we, we had a, a meeting on Zoom the other day an actual for our actual job meeting. And you had gotten your... Your booster shot, you had gotten your flu shot, and you were you were you were fine. It was like a a drug cocktail you were on that was uh, <laughs> everybody else is kind of you know sore and 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 you know trying to recover, and you 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 seemed like you got a jolt of energy from from that concoction.
0: I did. I was uh, astral traveling there for a while, yep. you know, uh, residing in a a sparkly cave of the mind with that witch's brew of yeah. COVID vaccine and seasonal flu and I don't know. I might have thrown back a bourbon or something. Um, so I think I'm about as uh, immunized as a as a person can be. That's that's true.
1: You're invincible. I mean, you could you could do anything right now.
0: <laughs> I can, although uh, as I find myself wanting to be wary of Twitter, apparently I'm still pretty vulnerable to the uh, imbecility yes. that uh, often passes as reasoned analysis on our. Favorite, love to hate, uh, social media site Twitter,
1: the rage machine, it's
0: the <laughs> machine you turn on when you want to be, you want to get some good rage going. Indeed, you know, and and the big news this week, uh, at least on my uh, you know branch of the tr- Twitter family, has been uh, the release of the uh, the book length volume, the sixteen nineteen project, a new origin story, and and as you know. Uh, when the 1619 project first appeared in the New York Times as a journalistic piece, oh, I guess it was what in the fall of 2019. Uh, it, um, you know, it it sent its own kind of jolt, you know, through the the Twitter sphere and and in the uh, you know the media cycle uh, for uh, presuming to offer a new and much uh, darker complected, shall we say, understanding of America's past, that is, in fronting a narrative of black history, centering a narrative of black history. Uh, There was bound to be not only political fallout, Josh, but the thing that I think got both of us on edge and ultimately, you know, even uh, what um, provided incentive for us to do this podcast it's not just how the, the traditional sort of right-wing hacks responded to 1619, but how uh, those within the academy, that is our our colleagues in the history profession, uh, also responded with a kind of, uh, well, what would we call it? A kind of um, outrage. Pink. Pink. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think outrage is probably better. <laughs>
1: No, I mean, it was a defensive, it was almost a, a defensiveness, right? That, that mm-hmm. how dare you, how dare you speak on these, on these matters that are already settled, I think, in a lot of their minds. Um, you know, we don't need to hear more on these, on these things and certainly not from the likes of you.
0: Exactly. And so what we've, we've been, uh, you know, witness to over the last now, uh, well, gee, two, two years uh, up to the publication of, of the book, book length, the. Uh, Treatment of sixteen nineteen, you know, has been sort of the history profession's uh, version of what uh, a cage match or something, you know, uh, uh, WrestleMania uh, for historians.
1: Yeah, yes, in in a way that we often don't see, um, I, which I, I think is fun. I, I think a little good-natured na- tussling is is fun on on big issues. The nature of these discussions has probably not been as high-minded as as I would prefer, but you know good good debate a good a good discussion a good argument is is i think healthy for for the field i don't know that this has been the healthiest discussion because of the defensiveness the hurt feelings and yeah. and all the rest from the uh, kind of the establishment certainly
0: yeah and i think it's brought that that into focus that there is an establishment which you know might seem only obvious except for the fact that what we now want to call the sort of history establishment in the country uh, did such a good job at camouflaging itself instead as simply pure truth, uh, yeah. as the objective truth of history. You know, nothing to see here, right? The story speaks for itself. But what 1619 has done, it's really shined a light on the fact that that there is a history establishment. Uh, in other words, what it always sort of styled its own self-styling, you know, as a kind of pure objectivity, you know, letting the history, you know, through meticulous scholarship, letting the history speak for itself, has instead revealed itself to be every bit as partisan, every bit as invested, every bit as much culture bound, you might say, as any sort of storytelling tradition could possibly be. And it's been that reaction to 1619 that has brought this into to clear relief, and uh, you know, speaking for myself, I've I've really welcomed this, you know, because as as our listeners listeners know, I was already pretty much hell bent, you know, on on taking down, you know, the old zombie, what I consider the you know the history that wouldn't die version, yeah. of of U.S. history, and so sixteen nineteen, I think, has has brought a lot of this. Sort of thing into sharper relief, and you know, getting back to the idea of historians fighting like it were a cage match or something, I'm ready to say that 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 old school they ought to tap out.
1: Done. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing you know, you talk about this establishment, but but the other thing that's become really clear to to me, and I, I this might be I've already been clear, but how genealogical this this whole thing is, like you know, you talk about Gordon Wood last last uh, episode, and Gordon mm-hmm. Wood is the kind of scion of, of uh, Bernard Balin and mm-hmm. and Bernard Balin's got all these students spread throughout the, the, the Academy. And then those guys have their, their children. It's, it's almost very biblical, right? Uh, yeah. he, Balin spread, he, got, he spread his seed far and, <laughs> and away. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, and it's part of that, they got to keep promoting this, this particular view. And so, right. you know, that, that explains some of that defensiveness. It's almost like, a, you know, an attack on the family when, when you try to come up mm-hmm. with a different interpretation, I must defend the kinfolk.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's what we defined in an earlier episode as the episteme, you know, because yeah. ideas never exist apart from the the systems of power that finance them, endow them, tenure them, et cetera, right? And yeah. so you're not just taking on Bernard Balian's, you know, ideological view of the framers, you know, or the founding fathers or something. You're you're taking on the whole established Core of interests, but uh, whether it be in the Ivy League institutions, or the history profession, or the uh, professional associations, you know that sponsor the conferences, the places that provide the research grants, you know you're taking on that that whole episteme, you know of of power and knowledge that then create these sort of established uh, stories, and so. You know, with 1619, you know, what, what Nicole Hannah Jones uh and her cohorts are doing, you know, is try is well, just in terms of the story itself, they're trying to center a new narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, what they call the origin a new origin story, where instead of you know investing the pilgrims, you know, and the new England settlers as being somehow the proper locus for you know the understanding the origins of what will become the United States. They're saying you're better off looking at 1619, the arrival of the first enslaved African people and and setting the narrative from there. And you you would think that would be a reasonable enough suggestion. You know, but as we've said before, a lot of the blowback uh, from historians on that. Look, I mean, you know, again, we would expect to see the culture warriors taking that on, right? Yeah. People invested in white
1: nationalism. That and guy, they have, by the way, but-
0: Oh, both. But, yeah. Very much so. You know, we see a, a slate of, you know, legislation, right, you know, across the country of, you know, <laughs> prohibiting critical race theory and, mm-hmm. you know, the mentioning of uh, what, I don't know, color diversity or something, you know, but, but in the academy, you know, the folks that in yeah. many cases, I as a graduate student were- know, some sort of taught to revere or something, you know, that, that you would think it would be a reasonable enough suggestion to offer a new narrative and even a new centered narrative around something as obvious as the presence of uh, African people, but also the development then of enslavement and the economy of enslavement that will, you know, carry on for the next 250 years all the way to the time of the civil war. You would think that would be a reasonable enough thing and in some cases those who are the harshest critics themselves have contributed to the historiography of understanding the place of uh you know enslaved people black and brown people you know in in the uh you know the development of American history. but nevertheless it becomes very proprietary and if we understand it in terms of its you know being an episteme it's not just who gets to tell the story or, or, or which story gets to be told. But it's all these other related interests as well. So uh, look, there was a, a review in the New York Times. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm fond of, of using the Times as a kind of bellwether for middle America or something, you know? And yeah. But you know what I mean? Or or at least the kind of liberal middle America, yeah. you know? And the, the ideological uh, middle, ideological middle. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, the the I guess that makes it with the David Brinkley,
1: <laughs> you know.
0: If if Sam Donaldson is the radical left and George Will the reactionary right, then yeah, the New York Times must be the David Brinkley. Uh, sorry for that uh, outdated cultural uh, <laughs> reference, folks. Six pe- <laughs> six people will get that. Everybody else looking it up. <laughs> it's just a reminder of how very old I am. But uh, so Adam Hochschild, you know, a guy who. Sort of quasi historian, I've always thought of Hawkshaw. I think he taught at the journalism school at Berkeley, uh, but has written historical journalism and then has just written some histories. The the book on uh called King Leopold's Ghost, Mm -hmm. which came out, but I don't know what a couple decades ago, maybe, on the uh the cataclysm of you know the Belgian colonization of the Congo and Africa. Uh, since then, he's written a book on the ending of the slave trade in Great Britain. Uh, around the turn of the 19th century. Uh, so, Hochschild, you know, he's, he's a very able writer and storyteller and has done some in- interesting, uh, you know, historical work. Well, they, they chose him to review the 1619 9, Project uh, book volume. Uh, and so, reading Hochschild's review, he said, I picked up the volume with some apprehension, not because I disagree with the project's basic aim. Thus, his liberal credentials, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, the project's basic aim of telling the truth, I guess. Uh, but because I had been troubled by some overstatements and factual errors in the newspaper version,
1: mm, very troubled.
0: Yeah, by overstatements and factual errors in the newspaper version. Now, look, anybody who's listened to our, our podcast, you know, uh, you know, over the long haul. Uh, particularly back in the beginning knows that we we met that issue head on of whether or not 1619 was in fact replete as critics charge with errors and as critics still suggest it is uh, and our conclusion at the time was well no it isn't um, what sometimes are called factual errors really are more like what storytelling preferences. <laughs> Interpretive differences, interpretive differences, you know, uh, because well, factual errors are easy enough to fix. Like if something happened, you know, if Caesar crossed the Rubicon, you know, in one particular year and you said it was actually the next year, what do you do? Mm. You go back and you say, oh, here, that's an easy fix, right?
1: Yeah. It's a Wikipedia page, right? Wikipedia, Wikipedia constant yes. editing of that kind of stuff. But, but uh, what I was going to say is that this, this whole thing has been so clarifying in that, you know, we've been talking about the, this episteme, and and what we see in that episteme is not that there's no room for debate and no room for argument, because there absolutely is. And and the people, you know, that that establishment we've been talking about, they do argue with each other all the time about all kinds of things. But what right. the episteme really does is it it creates the, the the parameters in which those arguments can happen, right? Which means mm-hmm. that certain people, mm-hmm. the interpretation of certain people, then fall outside of those parameters and therefore need to be uh, need to be silenced. You know, directly, indirectly, whatever. Um, but but they don't belong, you know, this is not something that's worthy of debate because it doesn't fall within the, uh, the agreed upon parameters in uh, of our discussion, of our interpretation. Um, and falling outside of it is going to get that kind of d- defensive reaction that, yeah. that, that we were talking about.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's almost as if there's a kind of proprietary right mm-hmm. over the story. Yeah. And if that proprietary right is somehow offended, either because they didn't ask you to be a part of it or because they suggest an alternative narrative, then it's easy enough to say, well, this is all a problem of facts, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, let me me give you an example. So Huckschild says, uh, in a few ways, the 1619 Project falls short. Hannah Jones, for instance, still makes too much of Abraham Lincoln's flirtation with the idea of colonization. And what that uh, refers to there is that uh, Abraham Lincoln, like most white liberals of his age, uh, even as they advocated against slavery, often uh, suggested that the only peaceable future of the United States was to have all black people remove themselves from the country. (laughs) Let me repeat that. We have all black people remove themselves from the country to resettle most commonly, uh, the colonization ideal to resettle in a colony of West Africa known as Liberia, uh, and so as Henical Jones points out, you know even Lincoln himself, who is ostensibly in the standard version history of the country, regarded as what is the Great Emancipator, yeah. the one who freed the slaves. You know, her point is that this white nationalism you know, coursed right on through the veins of those erstwhile liberal types uh, with something like colonization. Now, okay, that's just a fact. Lincoln did advocate colonization right up to the time uh, and during the Civil War. That, that's not a factual error, but notice what he says. He says, still makes too much of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that an issue of fact, Josh?
1: That that is not an issue of fact. That's a very much an opinion, right? That I believe that he makes too much of this fact, right? Because you know, and he wouldn't say this, but it's in, it's inconvenient. And I, you know, this has been a, a, a running <laughs> thread in a lot of our critiques of, of of histories and and you know narratives is that a lot of times it seems like the choices are being made about what to cover, what to talk about, what not to talk about, based on how complicated it is to talk about the the full story. Right. Right. The, the, the narrative is being told in the way it's being told for a number of reasons. But one of those reasons, certainly, is it's an easy narrative to tell. It has good guys. It has bad guys. It has a beginning, middle and end. Um, it leads directly to us. It's triumphal. It is uh, full of of optimism. It's it has all those things that you want out of a story. And then adding those other elements gets in the way of those things. And so, you know, I'd rather just not deal with it. So let's you know that. And then we we talked about that last episode. You know the idea that Winston Churchill's legacy was complicated. Well, it's not that complicated. <laughs> it's just bad, right? <laughs> uh, you're, 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 you know, the complicated becomes a defense, but that's not actually a defense of anything. Neither is um, you know the the idea that that this stuff is is hard to talk about or hard to include in our in our traditional narratives. That's not a defense. That's not um, that's not enough to leave out you know key elements of the story, and 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 often not just key elements, but key figures in the story, right? Active elements, active individuals, active groups in the story who are often just treated as, as peripheral or, um, or, or people who can safely be forgotten about without having to be addressed in any, in any way.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, look, here we are in 2021. You know, I'm, look, I'm, I'm a bit of a pragmatist here, Josh. In 2021, what do we need to understand more? Lincoln's erstwhile liberal credentials and his ultimate willingness to foster the emancipation of enslaved people, that is well established in the Lincoln narrative and in the US narrative, by the way, because it supports the ideal of a self correcting republic that ultimately was, you know, with history going in the right direction, right? Lincoln frees a slave. But how much does that really help us understand now the problems we face as a country? with a myriad of issues but particularly the racial justice issue in other words if it was all fixed with lincoln freeing the slaves then you know why why george floyd in other words and that was a question we you know that we framed around the very early issues uh or episodes of this podcast in other words might it not be at this point in our time really terrifically important to understand how an erstwhile liberal, let's say, like Lincoln, that is, who was reasonably racially progressive to the extent that he was, you know, willing to foster a process of emancipation, why his adherence to something like the colonization ideal might signal to us that the issue was never resolved as cleanly as that other narrative might've suggested it was. In other words, why there was still what, a caveat or a kind of nervousness in the minds of otherwise progressive white leaders about the idea of an integrated society? Right. Does that make sense? In other words, uh, I guess what I'm I'm asking you, Josh, okay? Yeah. The oracle of history (laughs) I'm asking you is, do we need to understand Lincoln's ambivalence about an integrated white black society in order to understand why, still today, we face ambivalence, whether it be, you know, uh, a president who refuses to consider an erstwhile liberal president, Joe Biden, who refuses to consider something like defunding the police? Yeah. Even though the history of the police is steeped. In the very racial conflicts we're talking about, it continues to manifest those racial conflicts. Might it shed more light on that problem to understand Lincoln's own
1: ambivalence? I, I think it does. You it know, and I does. think that's why
0: we need to pay attention to it.
1: Yes, because because again, that the standard narrative is, is the march of liberty, the march of progress, um, which suggests that this, you know, that that desire for liberty was always central in the in the hearts and minds of of the American people and our. You know, and our good founding fathers, and and all that kind of stuff. But if you if you focus on the ambivalence, that's much more explanatory of what's actually happening. That yeah, maybe they had some you know some charitable thoughts about about black folks, or or you know about abolition or something like that. But but that is kind of overwhelmed by the 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 ambivalence about the society that would be created through through abolition, the society that would be created Mm -hmm. through actually granting rights. To, uh, to 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 uh, freed people and, and and this sort of thing. So to me, that that ambivalence is right at the heart of everything. Right, that the heart Thank of you. Yes. of um, you know, kind of this this liberal notion of of, of history. Um, you know, there's lots of people who are not ambivalent about about things in in ways that are even uglier. But but the ambivalence is um, is, is central. Now, it makes me think of that that Eric Foner quote that we've we've thrown out a few times, where he says, uh, "The history I was taught can't possibly explain the world I live we, we live yeah. in." Right. And that's that's exactly it. If you if you just see, you know, the American history as as the march of these of these uh, uh, these individuals, right, who who broke through the, uh, you know, the 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 trends of their time to express truth and and wisdom and and uh, promote liberty. Well, then you you can't understand the world we live in right now. But if you understand the ambivalence that was always at the heart of it, then you understand why our society is so ambivalent about so so, so many of these Mm -hmm. issues. Uh, uh, still, so
0: absolutely, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, that's really well said, and I think you may also agree that this is not fundamentally a factual issue, is it?
1: No, that it's is not. an no. issue
0: over facts,
1: yeah, no, um, yeah, again, like you know, uh, Hotchfield is saying, well, maybe we talk, they talk about that too much. Well, okay, that's well, <laughs> what's the measurement there? Um, no, it's not a factual issue at all, it's about what people are comfortable discussing. Uh, it's again about the parameters that the discussion can can happen within, um, but it's certainly not solely about facts, which um, right. you know they matter. Facts matter certainly. Of course, um, we're but, listen. We're yeah.
0: dedicated empiricists, aren't we? You know, we're not yeah, arguing yeah. for the irrelevance of facts. But the fact is, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln espoused call African colonization for black mm-hmm. people. That's what Nicole Hanna joins points out. You you can't refute that on a factual basis. What you can do is ask, what does it mean? Yeah. You know, but but Hochschild and others want to say, well, it doesn't mean much. There are other more important things to know. Well, well, maybe unless you can make an argument that suggests, no, it's actually quite central to understanding that that racial ambivalence that has uh, you know haunted us like a ghost, particularly among all, liberal, you know, political leaders, white mm-hmm. political leaders down to the present time. Let me give you another example um, from Hochschild's review of 1619. He says on another point that earlier also drew scholarly criticism. Well, gee, Josh, on my best days, I consider myself uh, at least a, a wannabe scholar. How about you? <laughs> I, I don't know who he's talking about. Well, I do know who he's talking about there, but he makes it seem as if the scholarly uh, criticism was a monolith, right? Uh, yeah. There are plenty of scholars who who disagreed with the critics of 1619, yeah. uh, and you and I were among them. But okay, on another point that earlier also drew scholarly criticism, she has made a few changes, but basically remains insistent, claiming that, quote, we might never have revolted against Britain if some of the founders had not believed that independence was required in order to assure, ensure that the institution of slavery would continue unmolested. Uh, yes. In other words, that's what Nicole Hannah-Jones is arguing, right? That yes. slavery is at the heart of what the revolutionaries were doing in 76. That is the protecting of their interest in slavery.
1: Well, I appreciate the the way he's, he phrased that because he says she remains insistent. But then the quote he actually has is, uh, we, we might never <laughs> have revolted if not for this. So that's actually right. not that insistent. That's suggesting right. that this is one possible way of understanding this, yes. um, that, that might explain it better than, than our traditional way of, of, of thinking it. So, uh,
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So again, not a factual issue, but more of an interpretive understanding of what we do with those facts. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, what do we attribute to such facts but the but but because it so often comes back from the critics as a factual issue it seems to undermine the credibility of the 1619 project in other words if you if you can if you can say of something of some line of argument that it's factually incorrect you've almost condemned it you know to a kind of inglorious death now part of what's going on here that that bothers me a lot is that he wants to personalize this in terms of Hannah Nicole Jones. Now, mm-hmm. she is the principal editor and even author of two of the important essays. But there's a whole team here of scholars, artists, public intellectuals um, who make up the 1619 Project. Uh, Joshua, I would be maybe a little bit on guard, if not offended, by the fact that he sort of seizes on her, or I guess he says she, mm-hmm. meaning Nicole Hannah Jones, a black woman, uh, journalist as being the font of a kind of, uh, what a kind of almost condescending lecturing or scolding attitude by a
1: white male writer. Yeah. It's it, it doesn't come off very well, does it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that's not 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 very appealing in that in that way. And and you know again, that's that that idea that we are the ones who get to judge the 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 viability of this, the um, the uh, suitability of this, and we're going to make our we're going to make our judgments from on high, you know, from the pages of the New York Times. Um, right. And uh, and yeah, I, I think you're right that personalizing it into Nicole Hannah Jones as opposed to the team of people and and the right. large research, right? She's not making this stuff up; she's basing oh, this right. on. Right. And reams of research that's been that's been done that supports the, yes. this idea. So, um, so yeah it is a little is a little uncomfortable. We'll just say. Yeah,
0: especially when the we in the we is, you know, mostly white male, yeah, middle-aged, late middle-aged writers, authors, historians. He goes on to say it's fine to take slavery's many defenders among the founding fathers off their pedestals. That's mm-hmm. the magnanimous Hawkschild Uh, Granting Nicole Hannah-Jones permission to do that. But there is need to go out on this shaky limb to do so. For Mm -hmm. their zeal to preserve the system that so enriched them is beyond dispute. Our Constitution with its three-fifths clause and fugitive slave clause is shameful testimony to that. A broader issue in the book is that with a few exceptions, the reader can too easily leave with the impression that the heritage of slavery is uniquely American. In other words, he's saying, oh, sure, go ahead and acknowledge that the the founding fathers, you know, I mean, the the framers, you know, often defended interests of slavery. How magnanimous of you, Adam Hawkshaw, given that Thomas Jefferson actually owned about 150 slaves at the time that he helped author the Declaration of Independence, right? In other words, you, you know you're making a virtue out of necessity aren't there aren't you by saying yeah it's okay to acknowledge that as opposed to what not acknowledging it yeah but again he's saying but we shouldn't act as if this was just an American problem because the same thing was going on all over the western hemisphere now this is very interesting to me Josh because in effect he's arguing that America wasn't exceptional <laughs> you know usually yeah. the argument is, when we're when we're extolling the virtues of the founding fathers, is that, that that America is exceptional, but I guess except when it comes to slavery, then we let them off hook by saying, well, you know, everybody was doing it.
1: Our nobility is exceptional, but our flaws are just the flaws of 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 the rest of the world, right? <laughs> so you know, the revolution was this thing that that brought us out of this historical moment and and you know created this new way of thinking, um, but what, we can also never be judged for. Uh, for to continue to do the things like the rest of the Western Hemisphere, which I don't even think that even works, because you know, I've used this example before in the in the the um, you know the Spanish American rebellions. Uh, Simone Bolivar, a massive slaveholder, right, inherits a, a huge number of plantations and enslaved people. He's gonna uh, he's going to create this revolution based around partially on on abolition, right? So we have this slaveholder very much a uh, Jefferson type figure in in Latin America in terms of his social class, in terms of his his upbringing in ser- in terms of his intellectual uh, influences. But unlike Jefferson, he sees the wisdom of of abolition as a necessary part of of the revolution. So again, that's that's a direct comparison that does not uh, does not <laughs> shine too well on on the decisions made by by the American uh, uh, revolutionaries.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point because if okay, let's broaden the you know widen the lens, open the aperture to consider the you know the wider Atlantic world or something, you'll actually find examples of people being more progressive on this issue than than Thomas Jefferson ever was. You know? Well, I mean, I
1: should have mentioned the Haitian Revo- revolution. Actually, I mean, that's yeah. that, that, right. That's absolutely within a decade of of. Uh, you know, uh, the Constitution, basically, and so um, yeah. So not only were they not exceptional,
0: they were actually slow to act. Yes. On these these virtues that they so loudly proclaimed of of liberty, equality, and these other things. I mean, it's going to after, after all take another, uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, you know, fourscore and seven years, yeah. you know, for the, for the fact of slavery to be ultimately overturned in the laws of the United States. Uh, which I would say, uh, not really fast-twitch muscles there. I mean, the anti-slavery <laughs> muscles uh, of the founding of fathers were not fast-twitch muscles, were they? They were slow-twitch muscles, kind of like I just saw a National Geographic thing about a, a sloth and how the sloth was so named by the Spanish conquistadors because it was one of the seven deadly sins, mm-hmm. sloth, yep. uh, because this animal... By evolution moves so slow, and I'm thinking that that must have also been true, you know, then of the anti-slavery tendencies of the American political establishment, uh, sloth-like, I think we could call them. Yeah. But but here's the thing, you know, it's and when he says in the final point, and then I'll, I'll get off Adam Hoxsey here. He says a final point. I wish the book had included more about the allies of Black Americans who fought against slavery, or its ongoing aftermath. So in other words, as a white author who apparently when he was in college may have uh, participated in some of the, um, you know, voter registration issues Mm. in the South, you know, a kind of white liberal college kid who got involved in the civil rights movement. Apparently, Adam Hochschild feels that white people are just not getting enough credit for the necessary work that black people
1: had to do. The, The question he's asking is, what about me? Where am I in this story?
0: <laughs> yeah, because white people typically haven't gotten enough attention, no, have they? In the telling right. of U.S. history.
1: That's that's bad. You, I, I mean, we, we talked about this off air, but I, you, didn't, you didn't include that quote. In that. <laughs> that blew me away.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I want to surprise you there. Yeah, I like it. Uh, one of my Twitter
0: buddies, a guy Woody Holton at the University of South Carolina, who's uh, part of the new wave of uh, American Revolution uh, history writing. Uh, newish, I should say, at least mm. for for the recent generation, uh, and who has taken on the Gordon Woods? I mean, he literally debated Gordon yeah. Wood uh, a week or so ago on this issue of uh, you know who should we credit and and for what in the American Revolution. His his new book called "Liberty Is Sweet" wants to you know uh, recenter the narrative outside of the Founding Fathers' narrative to include. You know, all disparate elements, including uh, black folks, uh, native peoples, uh, poor folk, you know, all, all uh, any number of sort of disparate interests that were critical at the time of the American Revolution. Because what we've done is a kind of myopia, right, is that yeah. that generation of consensus historians like Gordon, Gordon Wood and Balin, these guys, you know, created a kind of myopic view of the American Revolution such that the only really important story, Josh, was the story about those who they called the founders, you mm. know, uh, or the framers, or even at its most, I think I said the founding fathers with a near kind of religious adulation, you know, right. attached. Um, and so Holton's one of these guys who's really tried to, to offer a more, you know, dynamic, more fluid story. Uh, and, you know, he just said, I just saw today on Twitter, he said uh, that his only regret regarding the 1619 project is he got pulled into that argument what we kind of call uh, here on history against the grand kind of false argument really over whether 1619 was factually correct or not uh and he says he wished he had just you know not taken the debate on that instead from the beginning uh asserted it's it's utter importance and significance as a narrative you know as a mm-hmm. way of telling the story that is much needed and, and much welcome at least uh you know, for him, and and I think he's absolutely right about that. Uh, to be, you know, distracted over this question of, of factual correctness, the facts, as I as I suggested to Woody, I said, the, you know, the facts are fine. What 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 this is about is who gets to tell the story. Afghanistan, Vietnam, Iran, Native America, America. Well, everyone's allowed a past, they don't
1: care to mention. Well, we called this episode Walking the Dog, but we didn't really explain why it's called that. And and the other day we were texting and I responded to one of your, your texts, I'm walking the dog, something I do every day for, you know, hour plus or, or so. And you said we should call our, our next episode Walking the Dog. I think you said that in Jess, but in my broken brain, that that required some kind of gymnastics to figure out how that made sense for an episode title. Um, what I eventually came up with is is this this frequent uh, challenge I have when walking my dog, which is that uh, we walk basically the same route every day, but but often she decides she wants to um, go off in another direction, do her own thing, um, and not follow the path the path we're on. When I first talked to you about this, actually, I think I got my metaphor mixed up because I said that um this was this was really a, a, about about history that that i was trying to to um i was trying to lead the dog and the dog was trying to say that uh the dog was in charge basically right and i i, I said that's you know that's that's something we need to need, need to get away from But what i realized eventually is that we should be sympathetic to the dog in this case because what's happening here is that i'm trying to say there is a way that we walk and the way we walk is we take this path every time the dog's saying it's, we don't need to take that path. there's so many <laughs> different ways we can go. Um, and so what, what I realized that when I you know the, the idea of walking the dog is that we should be open to the idea that there isn't just one path we can take, that there's many different paths. And sometimes maybe we should listen to the dog and start, instead of trying to tell the dog that there's there's only one way we can go. And this gets me into something I've been reading lately, a, a, uh, a book that's that's come out and is causing quite a stir. It's been reviewed seemingly countless numbers of times. It's a book by the two Davids, Graeber and Wengrow, and it's called The Dawn of Everything. And if, if you don't mind, I want to share a, a, a text conversation we had. Um, I don't want to, you know, break, break your privacy <laughs> or anything like that. But um, you were reading one of the, uh, one of the m- many reviews of it, and you, you said this quote to me. You said, sound familiar? Quote, in New York, the two men sometimes met for expansive conversations over dinner. After Wengro went back to London, Graeber started sending me notes on things I'd written, Wengro recalled. The exchange has ballooned until we realized we were almost writing a book over email. Now, ultimately, that would take 10 years to write this book. And so I responded to that. So are you saying in nine years, we'll have a hotly anticipated book coming out? Maybe in four and a half years, we can publish a moderately anticipated book. And then you responded, a tepidly inflammatory treatise. And I said, we can do that in six months. So that's, that's how this conversation started. Uh, this is about our, our, our goals for the future which is to create a treatise in the next six months that will go totally ignored, I think. (laughs) But to to get into the book a little bit, I'm not too far into it. I'm sure we'll talk more about it as we go forward um, in later episodes because it is very uh, revealing. It has a ton of new information about how to understand particularly the deep human past and what that deep human past has to say about our present. But I want to focus on one particular issue because... As I said, the book's about a lot of things. Um, I mean, technically, everything to be exact. It's called the the dawn of everything. But as as I've gone through the first about hundred pages, the thing that's most connected with me um, in their project, and, and connected specifically to what we've been doing on this podcast, is the emphasis on on imagination. There's a lot of talk about imagination, um, and I've I've sent you a quote that I think you've now requoted to other to other people. They say that um, they say that lack of imagination. Is not an argument and this you know gets us back to what we were talking about you know in the previous in the previous segment which is that so often you know when you try to come up with a new interpretation people say well that's not that's not I, we can't accept that all right and so what, what they're saying is that lack of imagination their inability to imagine some different way of thinking thinking about things is not in itself an argument so the book at least as i'm interpreting it so far is in many ways an argument for expanding our imagination, which is something that we've talked about since the very early episodes. We've talked about the way that a big problem with our discipline, both as, as it's been presented in the classroom, but also on the pages of books and journals, academic books and journals, is that a lot of it seems intended to limit our historical imaginations. A lot of it is intended to kind of, you know, create that that, that narrow way that we can think about our past. So, so what, what this book is trying to do is Show us the world of possibilities that define our existence over the past 200,000 years or so, um, as opposed to this narrow idea of kind of evolutionary history where humans simply went from, you know, simple tribal societies or bands to tribes to chiefdoms to states. This kind of very traditional way of, of, of thinking about the past. What they've tried to do is show the vast diversity of choices humans have made in the past about how they want to live their lives. You know what?
0: And I would say, I you know what I think is worth throwing in there too, is that those were not value-free constructs. In other words, to go from primitive society to increasingly complex societies to civilization and, well, whoever we are now, was assumed to be a progressive story of of ever improving evolutionary change,
1: right? No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, they make the case that the way that kind of evolutionary history story came about was as a response to what they call the indigenous critique of European society. Um, and this is something I want to get into maybe in a later episode. But they, they talk about the, um, you know all of these kind of Jesuit relations. The Jesuits were all over North America, in particular you know, at least in their version of the story, they're talking about North America. And they recorded a bunch of conversations with indigenous, you know, we might call them philosophers or, or, or thinkers or or you know, debaters or something like that. And within those relations, those Jesuit relations was this very direct critique of, of European society. And so the response to that was this this idea of evolutionary history, which they associate with, uh, with a number of people, including Rousseau, but also a, a French statesman and ec- economist named Turgot, um, who really use that as as their defense. Well, yes, you know, there are things wrong with with our, our societies. But, you know, we're on the path of, of evolution that that they're just in the past, you know, these primitive societies where we have now gotten to this this higher, uh, more complex state of being that we call we call civilization. So no, you're absolutely right that there is a very direct political reason for the story being being told in the way it does. But but again, we don't get that broad story that that, the Davids, as I'll call them, are are trying to tell. We get a very narrow story that tends to present the past um, in a way that also narrows our imaginations because it tends to tell that that te- teleological straight line narrative in which everything leads inexorably to us. I mean, this has really been your critique of U.S. history, uh, but it's a broader critique of history as, uh, in, in general. And you know, get back to something else we talked about. There's a, a, a massive role being played by and establishment in this process. As they say at one point, as we've noted, this is a quote, as we've noted for most of European history, intellectuals seem to have been the only class of people who weren't capable of imagining that other worlds might be brought into being. They make the case that, you know, you can you can find so many examples of of peasants and, and common people having visions for their society different from the dominant, uh, uh, the dominant form of, of society, but consistently you get intellectuals who try to tamp down those, those possibilities, who, who, who write in a way that suggests, no, no, there is one way that society can be, and we need to try to make, our, make the best of this one way of being instead of trying to imagine something better. And ultimately what that, what that creates is this notion that the way things are, right, today, is the way things had to be, right? That we are the culmination of this history. And while, you know, there was choice along the way that aren't great and there's, there's challenges with our society, We have to solve those challenges within the model that we we exist within. So what Graeber and Wengro are doing in the book then is reframing some of the kind of fundamental questions about the past. They're unwilling to accept this idea that there is this, this one way of understanding the past. There's this one path that we've taken from band to tribe to chiefdom to state or to civilization to state. And, um, and so they again, they want to rethink things. And, and what they, they're very clear about is that a lot of books, like the one they're writing, uh, tackle the question of the roots of inequality. They don't mention Jared Diamond, actually, in that in that, uh, in the book so far. But you know, that is the center of guns, germs and steel. You, you, you you've probably read that book at some point, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's got that the famous story of meeting uh, a New Guinean named Yali on the beach. And Yali asks him, why do you white people have so much more cargo than us New Guineans? And so that's supposedly his, you know, apple dropping on his head. And he wants to look for the roots of inequality. And what, what Graeber and Wengrow say is that that question doesn't really make sense because inequality itself is hard to define. What do we mean by unequal? In what way are things unequal? Are we talking just about wealth? Um, and they say, well, yeah, societies throughout history have had people who have more stuff and less stuff. But the big difference between previous societies and their own is that in a lot of, of earlier societies, there was no means for transferring your control of wealth into access for, uh, uh, to, to power, right? That that wasn't an obvious thing like it is in our own society. So they say the question is not about inequality. The question is how we ended up in a world in which our political consciousness, our freedom and our imaginations have become so constrained, Right? Why are we unwilling and unable to think in more broad ways about the past and about our future as well? And I'm going to quote here before we move on they say maybe the real question should be you know not what are the roots of inequality, but how did we get stuck? How did we end up in one single mode? How did we lose that political self-consciousness once so typical of our species? How did we come to treat eminence and subservience not as temporary expedients? Or even the pomp and circumstance of some kind of grand seasonal theater but as inescapable elements of the human condition if we started out just playing games at what point did we forget that we were playing
0: yeah i like uh i like the the you know the potential for this book to uh realign you know or or restart the conversation about uh not only how we got where we are but what what can we what can we do about it? Because if you take that kind of Panglossian, you know, yeah. view of history as always going in the right direction, the best the, special, of all worlds, yeah. the best of all possible worlds, then at the very least, you seem ungrateful to suggest. Well, can we have a different world? You know, yeah. I mean, what's what's wrong with you? If we already have the best possible world, you know, what, what are you going to do? Um, but you know, if you tweak that slightly say, in other words, what you're saying is we've painted ourselves into a corner here, yes. And we really uh, at this point are too far gone, you know, to suggest any kind of radical alternatives, you know because when you start, for example, questioning the uh, the pillars of capitalism or something, yeah. you know you're you're running into the you know the immediate sort of uh, hard, you know hard outer embankment or something of the you know, of of that that teleological argument that says, but but capitalism was the ultimate sort of perfection of man's inherent nature, you know, as an accumulator of goods or something. That is homo economicus, you know, and 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 and, and the best sort of outcome was to properly align the world's resources with man's inherent nature as an accumulator of things. But, you know, what Graver right, yeah. is saying, and what Grover is saying is, well, well that's just a conceit of storytelling, <laughs> you know? In other words, that, yeah. certainly that argument, you know, um, worked into the interests of those who were promoting capitalism, you know, to have the, the story told that way. But we shouldn't confuse that then with some, what, immutable law of humanity that has us conforming then to that picture of uh, social development. Uh, because what, you know, they're interested in showing are all these counterexamples, right, in which history could have gone a different direction, you know, where there were viable alternatives to that dominant historical track, if you want to call it that, of man as accumulator of power, of resources, of land, of control over other human beings, you know, where there were more cooperative, you know, yeah. less uh archly divided or subdivided models for human society that didn't require someone on top and someone uh beneath them. And that it's worth paying attention to them. You know, in the example you and I were talking about, one that we always sort of feature, I suppose, when we're doing ancient, you know, the run-up to civilization as it's usually called, is the example of Chatal Huyuk in what is now modern Turkey in Anatolia. Mm-hmm you know, of a pre-civilization settlement that is before the rise of cities, you know, around 5,000 years ago. Uh, But after the uh, beginnings of agriculture, where you have this kind of hybrid community as it's always been framed, right? A kind of what? Maybe transitional or bridge community between pre-agriculture and sort of post-agriculture civilization. But these guys are saying, no, actually... It was its own viable model of human society. Because first of all, to, to look back now and claim that it was merely trans—you know transitional, it lasted, Chital huyuk which featured all these disparate elements, you know, of, 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 of sort of cooperative, relatively non-hierarchical, hybrid farming, hybrid uh, foraging uh, community it wasn't just a bridge they it was there for 1500 years <laughs> yes so i think that entitles them to something more than just a, a merit badge you know as as what as a kind of transition to the real thing of civilization or something yeah. they were the real thing for 1500 years of a yes. kind of cooperative human community without all the uh hierarchical and uh, a you know, g- g- claims of a power, or powerful and interested material class of rulers or something.
1: Yeah. And, and it, it's, it, it gets at one of the challenges of doing this kind of big history of, of the deep past is that every site that's come before us has disappeared, right? Everything's, nothing is still in place that was in place, you know, mm-hmm. 10,000 years ago. But the way that we often uh, interpret that is, therefore, because this is that evolutionary framework, this is that kind of almost so- social Darwinian way of, of, of thinking about history. That the fact that they're not around anymore suggests that they failed. Failed, yeah, and the yeah. fact that they failed means that you know that we are the culmination of, of choices and adaptations made that lead to perfection. But you know, what the United States is the oldest democracy in the world, and we're like two hundred and fifty years old, right? right? Right. Which is nothing, you know. You said uh, fifteen hundred years. <laughs> yes. Uh, so. You know, th- we, we just have a hard time kind of thinking in that way that that these things that existed, you know, things come and go. But it doesn't mean failure when, when things go away. It means, you know, things changed, often ecology changes, situations change, different choices are made. And that's the main thing that they want to they want to get across is that they don't want to idealize, you know, the past. They don't want to idealize these uh, these civilization these societies that had often been uh, depicted as as primitive or simple. Um, they don't want to suggest that, you know, in the deep past, we had these simple but happy societies of egalitarian humans who made no distinction of social rank or anything like that. They say, actually, that's not true. There's lots of evidence of social rank. But what we also find is that people had choices to make. They were politically self-conscious, as they say, meaning that they didn't just accept one way of doing things as the right way. Um, they often uh, transition from one thing to the next. They often did that in the space of a single year. They engaged in what they call seasonality, um, in which they would live one way for part of the year and another way for another part of the year. And that was seen as you know, a, a way of surviving and, and thriving in, in a world that uh, it could otherwise uh, be difficult. And so They offer lots of examples. You know, Actually, one example I can throw out is, uh, is the area around Stonehenge in, in England, where we have evidence that the people there had been farmers, but by the time they built Stonehenge, They had transitioned away from farming to uh basically collecting nuts and uh and and then processing those nuts into food right so that's a choice they made that farming actually of of cereal grasses was not the best way to survive and they're going to do something else they offer other examples of societies in in the amazon for instance that lived for part of the year during the um during the wet season i believe they lived in these very kind of open egalitarian societies in which there wasn't really leadership although there was a central figure who was kind of a mediator, who was uh, somebody who distributed charity and, and, and uh, medicine and things like that. And then in the rest of the year, when, when, the, uh, when the dry season began, they, they formed into smaller hunting bands and they wandered across the landscape under the order of these hierarchical chieftains who had near dictatorial power over, over the population. Right. So, so you see these both things in one society, these radically different ways of doing things. Um, and it's again, it's not that this is better or worse, but that what it suggests is they didn't feel like they had to do one thing or the other. They were making self-conscious political choices to try to develop the kind of society that would function best given the circumstances they lived in. And that's the lesson, I think, right, for a lot of this. Again, I'm only 100 pages in, so I don't want to say too much, but that seems to me to be a big lesson here, is that we've reached this point where we we don't think we have choices. We imagine we're politically self-conscious when really we live in these societies where the options are so limited for what kind of society we want to live in. Uh, and so that's that's the tragedy of, of the modern age, um, not just inequality, but the lack of, of freedom and choice and self-consciousness that our society allows.
0: Yeah, and I'd even go a little bit farther than you want to. You know, I would say it is about better or worse because mm. you can bring in, I think, relatively objective criteria Something like sustainability, for example. Mm -hmm. Would we agree that, you know, a social model, social economic model that is sustainable is relatively better than one that isn't sustainable, you know? And I think what we face as moderns, you know, these questions of sustainability, we know it's not sustainable, you know, we know we can't continue to consume fossil fuels and give off... um, you know, uh, uh, you know, greenhouse destroying uh, gases, and and claim that this modern corporate uh, or you know capital model of, of 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 the world is is sustainable. It isn't, you know. And even yeah. where, and I agree with you. We need not romanticize. We're not looking for noble savages and some idenic exactly. yeah. past. But when you talk about relatively egalitarian societies that did have normative status differences, that's very different, you know, than saying somebody in Chatal Huyuk had a domicile that was relatively larger than their neighbors. Uh, that's very different than saying, you know, uh, Elon Musk versus the uh, minimum wage worker at Foster's Freeze or something. You know, in other words, the gross right. inequalities, yeah. <laughs> you know, of the modern age have yes. really no correlative in those more egalitarian societies, uh, that we yeah. might, you know, we might point to.
1: Right. Well, and, and, and the other thing, you know, the reason why they were relatively more egalitarian, again, they don't really like that. They don't really like that term egalitarian because they don't think it's, it's, they, they would talk more about freedom than egalitarianism. But one of the reasons that there is more freedom and more choices because the societies were created specifically to keep them from falling into the trap of this hierarch, hierarchical system. That would preside forever, right? That they, they were making specific political choices to create a kind of society that would not place them under the power of of a single individual, um, in in a way that that the the you know the famous civilizations of the river valleys did, for instance. Mm-hmm. That they were making choices specifically to keep that from happening, which is is important important to note. And and I think you're right, by the way, that you know me saying it's not better or worse. I think maybe I was afraid Hotchfield was going to jump on and and, and charge <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, I was I was talking too much about. Uh, about better or it being better. And I, I wanted to uh, assuage him right away. But no, yeah, I think you're right.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, Adam Hochschild, uh, you know, he's a sensitive guy. So I appreciate yeah, yeah. that. Uh, all right. And, you know, one thing I'll say more about the Graeber and, and Wangro book is that, uh, you know, this grows also out of David Graber, or the late David Graber, by the way, who passed away yeah. last year uh, at, at the age of 59, uh, quite unexpectedly, that he, was himself very much the enfant terrible, you know, of of his generation of anthropologists. Right, he was on his yeah. tenure track at Yale, but because of his political activism, particularly in this sort of anti corporate, anti Wall Street, you know, anti globalism uh, facet, he'll be later one of the leaders of the Occupy Wall Street movement, right, in the early 2010s. That uh, Yale denied him um, promotion, right, yeah. uh, and so. His own sensibilities, you know, about the, uh, it, well, look, he may not want to use the word, but I it just, it's convenient the inequalities or lack of freedoms. I mean, however you want to frame it, of the modern age, you know, w- one thing that inspired him to think, you know, more imaginatively, as you say, about the, uh, you know, about the options that are present in human history that never get talked about. You know, uh, even right. those options. And one of my favorites, he talks about Cahokia, which was the, you know, the pre-Columbian yeah. native settlement on, on the banks of the Mississippi River near modern-day St. Louis. Cahokia, you know, the great mound builders, you know, were, were high, very hierarchical, right? And even mm-hmm. despotic in terms of, you know, enslaving labor and that sort of thing. But at some point, you know, they, they suggest that the evidence tells us that the people, the, the sort of uh, ordinary folk of Cahokia, just got up and walked away.
1: Yeah, we don't you need know, this. They, yeah.
0: they, they quit that civilization, in effect, yeah. because there were other options available, both for land use and and subsistence. And so, you know, the the Cahokia civilization, as it were, collapsed by choice of, of the common folk, you know? And so the idea that you've painted yourself into the corner once you've made your deal with the devil, you know, of modern corporate capitalism something well you may not like it but you're stuck with it or something i guess what they're trying to say is that's not what history suggests that there that you know given the imaginative capacities you know of homo sapiens that that there are plenty of precedents and plenty of options to imagine how we might live outside the net of this system that we've created
1: absolutely and and you know the thing that we we keep coming we have to keep coming back to is that when people say something like, we need to abolish the police, right? Then then the response is, well, what will that mean? Right. How can we exist without without yes. police? And what they're really saying is, I can't imagine what that would be when, in fact, people have thought about that. And we, and it's been modeled, you know, in human history before what it could, what society could look like without that kind of, um, you know, uh, that kind of authority pressing down on everyone at, at all moments. Um, and, and that, you know, a lot of the arguments end up being those arguments about what you're willing to imagine and what you're not willing to imagine. And we can't let you know the lack of imagination be be the end of the, these arguments because we're, we're getting obviously to a crisis point where we got to think of we got to think of other ways of doing things. This is not working at this at this moment. Um, and uh, it's it's nice to think that history actually, instead of offering us you know pessimism that human nature is just acquisitive and greedy mm-hmm. and and hierarchical, that instead uh, that's not the case at all. You know that as, as exactly. Pat Manning said a few opposite a few episodes ago, human nature changes. Uh, you know in different social contexts and so let's try to create a social context that does not promote people simply because they have the wealth to transfer that into political power let's let's create something uh, create something different. Oh we need new
0: stories, don't we What's that? be wearing your thinking hat No matter how hard they try
1: they can't stop Well, you know, we were just talking about um, this attempt by, by Graver and Wengro to fundamentally change change the story and, and to see in the past, you know, possibilities for for the, the present and future as well. And, and you know, that, that there's some optimism to that, that, you know, we don't have to believe in a world that has led directly into what we have now, that this is the only option we have, that there's no way out. At the same time, and, and you, you're going to talk about this, while it would be nice to say all we need to do is change the story stories can be pretty sticky, right? Stories can be hard to change, that there actually are tons of, of barriers, tons of defenses that are put placed around the traditional versions of the past. Um, and so you're, you're gonna get into a little bit the difficulty of changing the story.
0: That's right. Uh, in fact, we can see it already with something like the 1619 Project, right? Which, what Nicole Anna jones has offered, a, what she's done is she's offered a new story. You know, mm-hmm. a new a new narrative, but we've seen the blowback. You know, and yeah. and not just the, the the historians that annoy us to no end. You know, who are guarding their turf and taking a proprietary interest in an old story. You know, but but the larger political establishment, where you have state legislatures now, you know, with with Republican uh, voting majorities, you know, passing laws that you know ostensibly prohibit the teaching of the mm-hmm. sixteen nineteen uh, project. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, creating the new story is just really the first required step, you know, toward ultimately what creating a critical mass of understanding and recognition and acceptance, um, what we might call the larger public understanding or even public memory, you know, that will affect the sorts of changes which you believe the new story augurs. Um, and that's really what we're talking about. Let's be clear. I mean, despite what, you know, those elders of ours in the history profession like to imagine, you know, was the ultimate objectivity of history,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, that, that, that you crafted a story that would stand for all time as the, you know, the sort of the one true uh, object, objectively true, you know, history story. That, that uh, you know, what, what we've been talking about on History Against the Grains from the very beginning is actually choosing from the story menu in such a way that the stories we choose have efficacy for us living now. In other words, for creating the world we want to live in now, not by yeah. sacrificing factual veracity or scholarly integrity, or anything like that. Although that's what's been suggested of the 1619 Project, but rather by crafting factual, factually uh, you know verifiable, uh, true scholarly you know with scholarly integrity, empirical soundness, crafting news stories that nevertheless offer us a clearer path forward in terms of the world that we. Understand, we would be better off living in.
1: Well, and what's so interesting is that's always how it was done, right? That that the version of these stories that gets told, like in the you know, we'll say nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, were the kinds of stories that that made, that that fed into their uh, scholars of that age their way of thinking about the world. But they didn't see it that way, right? They imagined themselves as just objective observers you know, just kind of uh, reaching into the past and pulling out this this true history right. where I think we're more intentional about it, right? That we want to find the history that will actually provide us with some answers for the world we live in. Um, and we're not pretending as if, you know, we're just a neutral or objective. We understand that this is a this is a project and the project has has meaning for our own lives, but also as we've talked about, the expanding of our, of our historical and political imaginations.
0: Absolutely. I'm really glad you said that because- uh, listen, I think it's more intellectually honest to do that, and mm-hmm. something we've also championed on History Against the Grain. It offers us an acknowledged responsibility, if you will, for moral clarity. Yes. Uh, in other words, those who would pretend that the story, the history, just writes itself according to some imagined, you know, standard of truth, you know, are making all the same choices. Uh, moral and otherwise, they're just not acknowledging that. They're just not coming clean with that. Listen, yeah. one of my favorite historians of the early 20th century uh, was Carl Becker. Carl Becker was an American historian who was writing uh, in the 1910s and 1920s, a very thoughtful guy who was part of a kind of new intellectual wave at the, at the time of looking at this sort of subjective nature, if you will, of, of history. Because remember, ever since the mid nineteenth century, coming out of the German school of von Ranke, you know this idea that the historian was really just a, a kind of careful steward of the truth. You know, the historian wasn't actually intervening with his own biases or whatnot, but but much more like a you know a detached scientific investigator might uh, one imagines you know, just merely marshalling the facts and letting the facts tell the story. But Carl Becker was part of a generation who thought that was nonsense. Uh, Becker wrote, every generation, our own included, will, must inevitably understand the past and anticipate the future in light of its own restricted experience. Must inevitably play on the dead whatever tricks it finds necessary for its own peace of mind. Hmm. And I really love that because Becker with characteristic flair, you know, says we play tricks on the past. In other words, we need something from the past, right? From the dead. Uh, The dead can't rise from the grave, you know, to dictate the narrative. And so we shouldn't pretend that the narrative tells itself as uh, contemporary beings investigating, making inquiries of the past. We are necessarily looking for something to answer a question that we have, what Josh about our own lives, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, to to hide that fact, you know, to camouflage that uh, camouflage that fact, you know, in the name of what objectivity or yeah. or neutrality, academic neutrality or something, is just a kind of narcissism or something, you know, because it's unavoidable, as as Becker says, that uh, as part of a generational milieu of people living in our time and place that what we want history, the questions we want history to answer for us are necessarily tied to the questions that most interest us. And so why not just be honest about that? Yeah. Because it doesn't mean after all that we're surrendering all the standards of historical integrity, unlike the critics, you know, the 1690 project who keep telling us that it, you know, it's not factually correct or something. That's not the issue. Uh, it's, it's, it's entirely it as entire integrity, uh, factually speaking and where there might be any mistakes, it's easy enough to correct those things, you know, correcting factual mistakes. Uh, that's a, that's an easy fix in the history game. Uh, it's the story we tell, you know, that that's yeah. going to either address the world, not only that we live in, but, but right, Josh, as we've been saying, the world we want to live in.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, what we we're also kind of seeing here is that 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 old guard wants to suggest that we don't really have choices here because the history is the history. And, and all we're doing is revealing that. But the reality is there's tons of choices happening, right? What we choose to focus on, who we choose to focus on. You know, I used that that uh, metaphor from Holly Brewer last last episode about not just looking under the streetlights, right, but looking in the in the dark a little bit. Those are those are choices just as a choice not to look in those darker places not to look, you know, in the, in the areas that are harder to find is a choice as as well. But when you present one view as kind of objective and neutral and the other view is politicized um you know, an identity based or something like that, you're you're creating a false dichotomy that doesn't exist because you know, the people we like make choices, the people we don't like make choices, and we ourselves make choices. And as long as as you as you said, as long as we're honest about what's happening, you know, it it's still good history, right? It's because it still follows the rules of how we do research. How we determine facts, how we create interpretations—that mm-hmm. stuff's all there. But but what we choose to focus on, you know, it matters, um, and it can help us, as you said, imagine something different for the future.
0: Absolutely, and I think being clear yeah. about those intentions—that uh, is laying our cards on the table, as it were—you know—gives us, you know, a uh, you know, kind of uh, better leg to stand on, you know, because it it, it suggests, yeah. you know, that that we want history you know ultimately to answer questions for us in ways that have efficacy and you know even utility for the problems of the world we live in now look um so telling the story though as I'm suggesting that's possible that's very doable as Grabner and, mm-hmm. and Wingro suggest you know if, if we are allowed to use our imaginations, uh, if we're allowed to look in those less often visited uh, corners of the past, we're likely to find, you know, an abundance of, of, of new stories. But as we've seen with 1619, coming up with the new story is only the first step. And, and you're going to run into that episteme, that, that hard outer wall, you know, hmm. of the fortress, the fortress of knowledge that is so yeah. tied up with all those interests, professional and otherwise. So uh, we were talking in the last episode about how, you know, a new story in effect was created after the Civil War, the story of what we call uh, the Old South. Uh, that is, meaning the South before the Civil War, a South, an imagined South of plantation patriarchs and enslaved black laborers that in the telling of the Old South story, you know, amounted to a kind of organically pure state of society in which. Those who were on top governed paternalistically, those who naturally served them, and thus all the parts somehow cohered. And the best example we said of this last time in cinema terms was, of course, Gone with the Wind, the blockbuster motion picture from 1939 that encapsulated this view, this romantic view, this nostalgic view of an old South, and as we suggested, this was a view that found its way into the arteries of publishing from textbooks to popular histories, you know, in the political speeches of the age, which, after all, thinking of Carl Becker here you know, and the generational impetus for this story was an age of of what? Of Jim Crow segregation in this country, was an age of nativism and reaction to immigration and immigration restriction. So the, the utility of the Old South story was that it reaffirmed the idea that the best way for America to be governed, the best social model for America was one of what? Of white folks on top, and everybody else, more or less, subordinate to them, in a kind of uh, what servant status below.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of um, there's a there's an historian named Mia Bay who's got this definition of of racism that I really like. She says, racism is about taking the existing power structure and assuming it has a natural it has a natural quality to it. Mm-hmm. Right, things are exactly as they should be. In other words, mm-hmm. and that's the base of it. So we just take the, the society as it is. Then that becomes what should, what should be. And so, you know, what you really see is people kind of running with that idea that there is a natural order to things. And that order is not just the result of, you know, greed or, or whatever else, it's the result of, of nature and science in many ways, Mm -hmm. um, which, which then gets, you know, turned into these, these books about the past, which also present that hierarchy as being natural, in part of the the regular order of things,
0: yeah, it can be imagined as a, a natural order. It can be imagined as a great chain of being, some kind mm-hmm. of theological order. Uh, in other words, there's no uh, end of ways that it can be justified. You know, to um, to justify, in other words, to legitimize the, uh, in this case, the ruling interests of whites vis a vis other people. Uh, well, OK, so this story becomes so embedded, the story of the Old South, that, you know, in, a, in an episteme of, of what was then the U.S. history profession, the, the sort of guardians of knowledge, you know, the, the history profession itself was segregated, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you had black scholars, people like Du Bois and Carter Woodson and others, you know, who are, are doing wonderful scholarship. But they're not getting to the big conferences, right? They're not getting positions in the history departments of the age, because like most everything else in American society, the history profession was pretty much entirely and thoroughly racially segregated. So there are other stories being told simultaneous to the the Old South story, but they're not really denting the hard outer shell of that mainstream understanding or public memory of the way it
1: used to be in this country. There's no big Hollywood blockbuster based on it. You know, that that right. that helps.
0: Yeah. I mean you get look, you do get a you get a blockbuster of a different sort. You know, you get W.B. Du Bois writing in 1935 a two-volume history of the Civil War and Reconstruction era called Black Reconstruction. Mm-hmm that completely in the way that 1619 project, for example, completely recenters the the narrative. I mean it really was a landmark achievement in historical writing in many ways in the 1930s. Du Bois' book Black Reconstruction, uh, you know because prior to his book, reconstruction had for decades been the seedbed of white racist, historiography, what we call the Moonlight Magnolia Romance of the Old South had taken root in the story of Reconstruction. And both the Hollywood blockbusters of the era, uh, that is The Birth birth of a Nation in 1915 and Gone with the Wind in 1939, you know, Reconstruction became a lens through which heroic white nationalism was literally projected onto the big screen, right, of the movie theater. And moviegoers watched the tragic tale of Reconstruction unfold, and why was it a tragic tale? Well, mostly because it was the time in which not only enslaved people had been emancipated, uh, often through their own efforts, you know, but but then furthermore, during Reconstruction, were empowered with constitutional rights, political liberties, and even um, access to governing. That is, during Reconstruction. The, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, which gave uh, the former slaves uh, the rights of citizenship and even uh, uh, black males, uh, the right to vote and, and hold office. This was seen through the lens of the old South story then as a tragic mistake, right? When America's right. organic social and racial order somehow, what, went off the rails and mm-hmm. spun out of control. So Du Bois, as perhaps the preeminent black intellectual of his day and a Harvard-trained historian, is, you know, is, is had enough of this, right? And he's he's compelled and inspired by the call of others to undertake this extraordinary work of historical research to try in effect to recenter the narrative. And instead of seeing Reconstruction as a tragic mistake, because in the Old South view it empowered black people. Du Bois is going to try and show just how much agency Black people had, even while enslaved and certainly after emancipation during the course of Reconstruction, to do what Nicole Hannah-Jones would say now, uh, that is to become perfecters of democracy, that is to make Mm. America's democracy not only interracial, but far less beholden to class interests, racial interests, and to exercise sort of the promise of of democracy, Josh, by working at the grassroots, you know, to to make democracy an active, achievable, uh, lived experience, as opposed to something that just, you know, elites, you know, what dictated to everybody else or something like that. The subtitle of his work uh, was An Essay Toward a History of the part which black folk played in the attempt to reconstruct democracy in
1: America. <laughs> That's quite a subtitle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, in all seriousness, I think in the way that the 1619 Project began as an essay, in other words, right, as, right. A, as a conversation, you know, about how the story gets told, you know, Du Bois was very aware of his in, his own place as a black intellectual and as a storyteller. That Yes, this was going to be scholarship. Yes, it was going to be freighted with all the kind of empirical burdens of good scholarship. But ultimately, he doesn't want people to miss the fact that he's doing what? He's telling a new story.
1: A radically different story.
0: Yeah. And thus calling it an essay was more than just a kind of, what, a humble bragging. He really wants yeah. people to see this as a new way of telling a story. But he knows that if he doesn't you know, frayed it with all the normal, you know, standards of great meticulous scholarship that'll simply be uh, dismissed as what? Factually insufficient. Sound familiar?
1: <laughs> Factually insufficient. But, but you know, there's also that idea, well, he's got a, he's got, he's got interest in this, right? So it can't really be be true history because he's writing from his own perspective, you know, through his identity, which is the great sin of, of historical writing in the, in the era of scientific history yes. and objectivity, Right. That he's he's you know he's he would be challenged in that way in a way that a white a white scholar would not.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. There's an even greater burden of expectation on him than is a black scholar. He can prove his bona fides by being just as meticulous in his research. But but keep in mind how difficult that was going to be, Josh, because at the time, as a black scholar, Du Bois was not even guaranteed entry into many of the white uh governed repositories of historical knowledge in other words into the archives right Mm -hmm. that is as a black man he he's not even going to gain free entry into a lot of the archives and libraries particularly of the south where these records are kept yeah because he's living in the age of jim crow right yeah so the degree of difficulty here and what he's doing is almost off the charts but you know what he he pulls it off um By recasting the story of Reconstruction, Du Bois rejects the popular stereotypes featured in White Histories. Images that showed Black freedmen during Reconstruction as either deluded and drunk, you know, intoxicated by an overwhelming freedom for which they were uh, entirely unprepared, or otherwise in the Old South narrative as docile and derelict, really childlike in the newfound political rights that they had been foisted uh, foisted on them by scheming Northern Republicans and carpetbaggers. In other words, he wants to demolish the basic pretenses and conceits of that Old South storytelling. And he acknowledges in the very first pages of his work that to, quote, tell the story as though Negroes were ordinary human beings will from yeah. the first seriously curtail my audience. So as a hedge he issued a disclaimer to the reader. And let me read it to you, okay? Okay. Du Bois writes, it would be only fair to the reader to say frankly in advance that the attitude of any person toward this story will be distinctly influenced by his theories of the Negro race. Mm. If he believes that the Negro in America and in general is an average and ordinary human being who under given environment develops like other human beings, Then he will read this story and judge it by the facts adduced. If, however, he regards the Negro as a distinctly inferior creation who can never successfully take part in modern civilization and whose emancipation and enfranchisement were gestures against nature, then he will need something more than the sort of facts that I have set down.
1: What do you think? Wow. I've, I've never heard that before. It, I mean, you're going to be shocked to hear this, but this reminds me again of Grayburn and Wengro because one big you know, thing that they want to remind people of is that the assumption whenever you're studying any humans is that those humans are capable of, of practical decision making, practical choices, that they're self-conscious and, and, you know, and they, they often talk about being politically self-conscious, that we should take people seriously and and you know they're talking about the way that quote unquote primitive humans have been been discussed but you know what this suggests to me is is this is just a broader problem you know in the way history has been told is that some people are given access to to choice to the idea of of practical decision making to uh to to agency to use that that maybe tired phrase while other people are are uh you know consigned to this kind of place where where they're just kind of reacting to to what happens and they're you know not making choices but they're just being in a way that they're supposed to be um, and so the fact that that um Du Bois has to you know specifically talk about this mm-hmm. that had to be a you know a, a very unique thing to to appear in a book at that at that time but it, the fact that he had to is I think extremely revealing
0: yeah do, does it help to understand that at least from my perspective he was driven by outrage <laughs> in other words the, yes. you know yeah no, the, the upside of, of a kind of righteous anger here, you know, drove uh Du Bois, who by yeah. the way at the time was was 67, you know, he wasn't in the, the springtime of his life. He he'd already fought many yeah. of the battles, you know, as one of the, the founders of the NAACP, the anti-lynching campaigns. I mean, this guy had had already crafted a full life as a scholar and an activist. But he's he's motivated, you might say, at age sixty-seven, then, yeah. to craft every page of this seven hundred twenty-nine-page blockbuster of a book, because not only had he watched up the build the buildup of an old South mythology over his entire career, beginning with his early appointment, by the way, as a professor at Atlanta University, mm-hmm. uh, but also more recently uh, in his life with the rejection of an article. He had been uh, solicited to write on Reconstruction for the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, look at a time when, when you know, racist histories were selling hand over fist. Du Bois couldn't get his straightforward encyclopedia article published for by the Encyclopedia Britannica simply because he refused to delete a paragraph on the positive role played by Black freedmen during Reconstruction. In other words, the editors of the project said, we're not going to print your article unless you take that out, that that, that paragraph, that one paragraph on how black freedmen, that is the former slaves, had played a positive role in Reconstruction. Uh, so he was so outraged by this that in writing Black Reconstruction, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a man composing lines of, of lyrical force right? He is raging against the popular histories of Reconstruction based on, quote, the unsupported evidence of men who hated and despised Negroes and regarded it as loyalty to blood, patriotism to country, and filial tribute to the fathers to lie, steal, or kill in order to discredit these black folks. Uh, So he has a double burden here. I mean, on the one hand, He's got to be meticulous in his scholarship, even though the scholarly establishment in some cases literally locked against him. That is bars entry of any black person into certain archives and libraries of the South. He still has to overcome that to do the research. But then he also has to tell the story with, I say, this kind of lyrical force, lest it not register on the very... You know, conscience, uh, you know, of, of the reading public or, or, or something, in other words, right. he, he can't afford neutrality or something like that. He has to bring moral clarity with every sentence he writes.
1: Well, so I assume that the book is published and then Moonlight and Magnolia goes away instantly, right? And people start, <laughs> everybody apologizes, every, yeah, and then well, they, black they professors are,
0: are hired at Harvard, and, yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, not his exactly. views are instantly integrated. In the <laughs> yeah, not not quite. I mean, I would I would love to talk more about the content of a Black Reconstruction, but but let's let me just say this for now. Over two volumes, what his narrative does is it centers the lives and experiences of whom of Black people. In other words, mm-hmm. not, none of the denunciatory histories. Uh, of the of the age that had claimed reconstruction was tragic ever took seriously the idea that any of the black people living in the age of construction had anything uh for their own part to say or contribute toward the story they were simply seen as what as kind of convenient pawns in the narrative the white narratives of uh you know of the age that that wanted to indulge in this nostalgia you know of a bygone era of the old south um but but you know, he's doing something very different. I mean, he's actually going to find sources, you know, of petitions, let's say, uh, of records that documented what Black people had to say, even before emancipation, you know, of what enslaved Black people were doing during the Civil War to force the hand of the government toward emancipation by running away from plantations, by ultimately signing up and enlisting as soldiers in the Union cause, and then in, in Reconstruction, writing petitions, you know, calling upon the, the federal government to restore some sense of personhood through citizenship, you know, through, through voting rights, and even though ultimately it was a failed effort through land redistribution, the famous 40 mm-hmm. acres and a mule, and how at every turn it wasn't just, you know, uh, you know evil northern carpetbaggers manipulating a deluded black populace. It was black folks themselves who were taking the lead in their local towns and and districts of the South in organizing, you know, even against great odds, because remember the racial violence, the the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, terrorism being committed by former Confederates now against any freedmen who dared stand for rights, but yet they did. And that's the story that uh, Du Bois is going to tell now over the course of two volumes. And so essentially, what he's saying, what the new story has to include that the old story doesn't, you know, is the efficacy, uh, the personhood, and yeah, even the agency of black folks in history. In other words, they have to be full, full members in the telling, uh, full partners in the telling of these American stories. And I tell you what, 85 years after its publication, Uh, Black Reconstruction still retains its edge of storytelling boldness and depth of vision. You can order this thing, by the way, on Kindle if you want and and read Mm -hmm. it. It's available. Uh, Du Bois turned that conventional story of the Civil War and Reconstruction on its head. uh, And instead of a standard tale starring white political elites fighting over conflicting sovereignty claims, it offers a narrative driven by the determination of those who were enslaved to become Free. But as you suggest, having published it in 1935, it was, uh, how should we say, eclipsed maybe in the public mind very shortly after by the publication of a novel by a Southern white woman author named Margaret Mitchell called mm. Gone with the Wind. Uh, and as I sometimes uh, suggest to my students, of the two works, uh, you know, Du Bois's scholarly two volume. Uh, you know, narrative-changing story called Black Reconstruction, or Margaret Mitchell's Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, historical drama uh, called historical fiction called Gone with. Wh- which one do you think had a broader circulation, Josh? Uh,
1: I'm I'm gonna guess it's the the Mitchell one, which is telling you know telling that story that people are already ready to hear and basically already know how it's going to go, right? They know the story already. So it it, it serves to you know, make people feel, at least the white audience, feel better about where they are and and how they got there and, and, and where we're going.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and really the genius of of Mitchell's novel and then later the MGM movie was that it did, uh, at a time of Great Depression after all, right? When there was all mm-hmm. kinds of status anxiety for almost every strata of society, particularly white property uh, interests, you know, when so many businesses were failing and stocks had plunged and all the, the famous sort of, you know, symptomatic problems of the Great Depression. Um, here was a feel good, uh, racially nostalgic story that says, well, if we just hold true to our national, white national creed, you yeah. know, of, of, of a segregated nation, that, that ultimately things will be Okay, because even arising from the defeat of the Civil War, after all, you know, and the sorrow intendant now. I mean, you know, the movie really gets you somehow. What feeling sorry because the slaveholders lose, right? Yeah, which is quite a feat. Yeah, is the reassuring notion that uh, nevertheless there would be a national reconciliation on the terms of Jim Crow and nativists immigration restriction that would kind of restore the balance of things in the United States. Now, look, Du Bois was, was, of course, hip to all this stuff. When he he presented the finished manuscript of Black Reconstruction to his publisher, his publisher, by the way, Alfred Harcourt, mm-hmm. uh, Du Bois called it, quote, the crowning achievement of my creative process. And as the preeminent scholar of Black identity in America, he was under no illusion that the book would find a general audience in white America. In fact, he he cautioned Harcourt that, quote, it will not sell widely, it will not pay. (laughs) he, He hastened to add, quote, in the long run, it can never be ignored. Well, in a sense, Du Bois proved correct on both counts. On the one hand, the book was hailed as, quote, a bristling piece of scholarship that should disturb complacent historians, according to one reviewer. While another correspondent wrote to Du Bois, the Negro people of the United States, in fact, the colored peoples of the world, owe you a sincere debt of gratitude for your monumental work, Black Reconstruction. But on the other hand, Josh, the still segregated American Historical Association didn't even bother to review the book. Mm. Let me say that again. The American Historical Association, the preeminent professional organization of American historians, didn't bother to review Du Bois's book. Uh, meanwhile, racist work uh, from the day, like Claude Bower's The Tragic Era, which had a kind of undisguised you know, racial agenda of white uh, supremacy, netted much higher sales, as did, of course, uh, Margaret Mitchell's award-winning, soon-to-be blockbuster MGM motion picture, Gone with the Wind. Um, yet, as Du Bois predicted, the publication of his work did move the uh, standard version story wheel just a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, the, that telling of the white romance, the Southern romance, uh, that, that story, that genie, if you will, is now going to be out, out, out of the bottle, perhaps, uh, and, and which for years, that wheel had been locked on the racial romances of the Old South. Yeah, with Black Reconstruction, the wheel starts once to turn once again to turn, however slowly. I can tell you, in the 1980s, when Eric Foner was the first to once again take up the story of Reconstruction in a significant way, uh, his one-volume uh, work uh, on Reconstruction, and The Unfinished Revolution, which was itself a prize-winning work on Reconstruction, that Foner in that work acknowledges and pays tribute to the work Du Bois had done Mm -hmm. 50 years earlier. Uh, And and so, look, sometimes a story, even when it's uh, marginalized in its own time, can kind of what can kind of incubate or something. And and so in a way Du Bois's work was reborn through the work of Eric Foner in the 1980s. And, and I would say from that time to the present, certainly has enjoyed the kind of standing and respect in the telling of that part of the national story. But, but what about between those years? I mean, so we're talking about a 50 year period, right? Between 1935 and let's say, if memory serves me, Foner's book is published around 1988, something like that. So that's mm-hmm. 50 years, right? What happens yeah. in that 50-year period? Was it enough for, for Du Bois to write the story, to to recenter the narrative with Black people as actual historical actors, fully formed, three-dimensional, not just the caric- caricatures and, and racial stereotypes of the Gone with the Wind story? Well, Look, the gone with the wind story, for other reasons we'll talk about in future episodes, will itself now slowly fade into a kind of um, irrelevance as a kind of vestige of a racial uh age. But surprisingly, what fills the void, you know, of uh, of that, you know, of that racial storytelling, that 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 white nationalist storytelling of the gone with the wind school is not Therefore, the storytelling of W. Du Bois. I mean, Du Bois will help take down, there's no question, you know, but but partly because of what was happening in American society at the time. You recall what happens by the 1940s, Josh. There's a little fracas known as World War II, right? Mm -hmm. And the United States will find itself in a cohort of allies fighting against two regimes, both the Japanese Empire and of course, Nazi Germany, that themselves were predicated on one brand or another of what, of racial supremacy, mm-hmm. right? And so you could almost say that it's the events of the day, as much as say a single book by Du Bois, that will turn that kind of avowed and unselfconscious racial appeal of the old South story. Well, will make it awkward, Right. Well, that'll become yeah, right. an awkward fit for a nation that is fighting, uh, as Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, a, a war to defend the four freedoms uh, of, of America. In other words, as as the as the emissary of liberty and right, you know, it was no longer going to be so fashionable, uh, particularly in academia, to assume that these racially motivated histories had any kind of Currency and and you know other kinds of things are changing too. I mean, I was going to mention the rise, for example, of of the new social sciences and anthropology. You know, as you as you can attest, right, anthropology begins its career indebted to those kinds of racial theories, right? You know, extraordinary. Indebted
1: and, and, and the source of a lot of those theories, yeah. by the way, as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But then you get the work of Franz Boas, yeah. you know, to to create what was called at the time cultural relativism, which sought to look at at the non, uh, particularly non-white cultures, of the world on their own terms, as having their mm-hmm. own integrity, et cetera. It's one of his students, by the way, at Columbia, Franz Boas student, a guy named Melville Herskovitz, who's going to go to uh, Northeastern, or sorry, Northwestern, sorry, Northwestern, uh, and uh, create a department, essentially the first African Studies Department, and it will be his students working in U.S. history that seek to sort of support and build upon the Du Bois thesis, right, taking the idea seriously that Black folks uh, had their own, you know, cultural forms that that oftentimes even in slavery that bore the imprint of, of older African traditions. Herskovitz is going to be interested in looking on the ground at African cultures. Uh, and so trying to create room for a new narrative here in the new anthropology of the age that is going to credit uh, Black history, in effect, with its own sort of integrity. Now, you know, over time, these debates will carry forward how much you know to, to see African survivals in the form of African American culture and that kind of thing. But we shouldn't miss the significance of all this, because what's starting to happen in the 30s and 40s, and for other reasons as well, uh, is the opening up now of the potential narrative spaces for seeing a new story take place. Uh, and so as those stories become to, you know, cohere in the storytelling culture of academia and elsewhere, the possibility for changing that larger understanding, that popular memory, you know, becomes uh, ever more apparent. I I wish I could tell you that they lived happily ever after, Hmm. but I think as, as you suggest, just as that story wheel starts to turn and those new stories come forth, what happens outside the storytelling sphere in the global era of, of, of the Cold War is that a new kind of, of conservatism, a new kind of reaction in the 1950s, beginning in the 1950s, will set in such that many of these pioneering works, including Herskovitz's uh, The Myth of the Negro Past, W. B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, the, the work of black historians, Will remain, in effect, kind of in suspended animation as a new consensus school of history seeking to affirm the claims of the United States in the Cold War as mm-hmm. a defender of the free world, will in effect turn that story storytelling wheel in yet a new direction that will unfortunately defer and delay the full promise of those pioneering stories to give us truly integrated narratives. Uh, And we'll turn that story with tearing wheel instead to a new consensus view of a kind of white triumphalism that even if it doesn't carry the baggage of the old South, gone with the wind, overtly racist narratives will nevertheless restore a kind of what? A kind of central role to the history of great white leaders, of great white founders, of something called Western civilization, which is seen as the very acme now of that evolutionary historical development. And so, uh, yeah, not it's gonna take another 50 years in a post-Cold War world for those pioneering efforts in effect to once again be taken up so that a genuinely integrated narrative can, uh, can once again, you know, find its way into something like the mainstream, but that, you know, that, as they say, is a story for another day. We are rolling your monuments down the street like tobacco, tossing your effigies into the river. They weren't even of a pyre. Let me show you what you taught me about crime.
1: Forget a piece. We want the whole pie and everything must go aside. We are all still Negroes now. Yeah, that's... I mean, there's so much to, to say about this, but I mean, again, I gotta quote my my two Davids here, but you know, they have this line, scholarship does not always advance. Sometimes it slips backwards. And you know, I think that's that's very much the case. It's not enough just for Du Bois to, to put this work out there, right? That a lot of other stuff has to happen, uh, both that that further kind of diminishes his work in the sense that it doesn't get an audience. Um uh and then to elevate a different kind of story story as well. But I think maybe the other the other thing to note here is Du Bois himself how self-aware he is about this project right he, he tells his publisher this is not going to sell a lot of copies but it's going to leave its mark and maybe the, the lesson there is that you know when you have something important to say it's not good enough to say well nobody's going to listen right or it's not going to matter right that you you got to like he did you put it out there and then you hope that it will get discovered if not now it will get discovered at, at some point um, because it does start having an impact and it does start you know reframing the nature of the debate and um and so it remains important, even though, you know, the sales figures in 1935 might not be, that might not be great. Um, it it does ultimately have an an impact. Um, and I think again, the, the lesson there is get your stuff out there because, um, you don't know what, what kind of, um, impact it's going to make, and you don't know when it's going to have an impact, but if, if you've got an idea, uh, it's maybe worth telling. Yeah. Because, you know,
0: even stories have an, an afterlife, um, whatever the, the, their lifespan is, the regular lifespan of a story, whether it be short or long, you know, brief or extended. Uh, you know, in the case of Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, it took 50 years, you know, for it to, to gain kind of currency. Right. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for why that was the case. And we will talk about it in future episodes but I think it comes down to I found a nice uh, quote by a guy, Scott French, who's written about this episode or this issue of uh, historical memory and, and what stories get remembered. He said, you know, part of what you're talking about with all this is, quote, a nation's willingness to accept a counter narrative at odds with the official portrait. And that's what Du Bois's work was. Right. It was a counter narrative that was at odds with what was then the official portrait, not just of the old South, but of, but of the United States. And so, you know, it's not to say that's insurmountable, but it does suggest that ultimately for the, the lifespan of a story, or the rebirth of a story, let's say, for that to happen at some point, it has to become part of, I guess, what we would call that larger historical imagination of a people and what often uh, I think we describe as a kind of uh, memory of a people such that instead of it being an outlier instead of it being a footnote uh, instead of it just being a counter narrative it becomes in a kind of natural way part of the story we tell about who we are
1: and and you know what I what I'll add is that you know I said earlier that you know as Du Bois himself said that you know in the long run this will come 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 uh, to fruition people will, will take note of it it will it will have its effect but that that's not good enough for us you know we are histo- history teachers in the classroom, uh, we have this podcast that, you know, we see it as, as part of our, our job is to not just let these things languish for 50 years before they take hold, but to do our best to to put that out there to our students, to our listeners, to our family, even if they don't want to hear it, um, and and make sure that, you know, the next Du Bois is not going to have to languish in obscurity for 53 years before somebody pays attention to them. And I know that's
0: the point, Josh, where we come full circle with today's episode, right? 86 years after Du Bois published Black Reconstruction, we welcome the publication of the 1619 project, A New Origin Story, which appears at a time of racial reckoning, just as the Du Bois book had, whereas he was facing a rising tide of white nationalism, and white historical nostalgia, so too is Nicole Hannah-Jones confronting patriotic history and defense of Confederate statues. Just as Du Bois confronted Jim Crow and lynching, so too is Jones, the storyteller, confronting the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration and the new lynching of police violence against black bodies. Just as Du Bois fronted a movement for the National Association for the advancement of colored people, Nicole Hannah-Jones rides a neo-civil rights wave of Black Lives Matter. And unlike the magisterial effort of Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, which was consigned to a 50-year silence, you know, in that cycle of national storytelling, Josh, we can't let the 1619 Project, coming now 86 years later, and arguably the greatest effort to tell the big story of black lives in American history since Du Bois, we cannot allow it to be another 50 years, let alone 86 years, for the story wheel to turn again. The time is now, my friend, for this story to receive its due and to find its place in the storytelling imagination of the nation.
1: Yeah, and so I guess the, the lesson is don't just walk the dog. Sometimes you gotta, gotta <laughs> let the dog walk you, right? Right on, dog. <laughs> All right, we'll talk dog to you is, again. Hey do, dog is my co-pilot, by the way. There, there you go. That's the that's the bow on the, on the the this episode. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks.
0: Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play.